welcome to the Agris Law Firm video podcast. We are a different kind of law firm, and that's on purpose. At Agris Law Firm, we see you as a person and not just a client, and that makes us better at what we do. We're not just lawyers, and you're not just a client. We're friends, neighbors, and family. This is a show about all things legal-ish that friends, neighbors, and family want to know. This is season one, episode four, and today we're talking criminal law, marijuana, bail, and jail during COVID-19. Today's guest is Brendan Schiller, managing partner of Schiller Prayer Law Offices. A lifelong resident of Chicago, Brendan has extensive experience in a variety of areas of law, including criminal defense, civil rights, immigration, zoning, and licensing. Brendan, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Uh, doing well. Uh, thank you uh, for doing this uh, video podcast with me. Uh, I started doing this a couple of months before the uh, COVID-19 shutdown, and um, you are the first person I'm giving it a shot with uh, over Zoom, so uh, I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for uh, letting me participate. Of course. Uh, so tell me a little bit about your firm. I think recently it uh, merged and you've got um, more lawyers now, right? Yeah, so the firm's now called uh, Schiller Prayer Gerard and Samuels. It has four named partners and a fifth partner who's unnamed. Um, and it primarily focuses on civil rights, mostly Section 1983, police misconduct, civil rights, criminal defense, and immigration. Um, my practice these days is mostly kind of like a government relations practice, uh, mostly around marijuana. Um, and so that's, that's where I've, I've been focused the last couple of years with a variety of other things. Um, and then the, the firm is housed in a building called the Westside Center for Justice which houses six nonprofits and a couple other solo practitioners and small firms, all of whom are focused in various ways on trying to impact the criminal justice system, trying to impact policy, uh, providing pro bono legal services in a variety of ways, um, or really in a holistic way intended to uh, aid folks who are in danger of slipping into the criminal justice system or who are coming out of it. Got it. And you and I, uh, you, you and I went to John Marshall together. I think you ended up graduating early, uh, but we've, we've been practicing, I think, for about the same amount of time. Um, and I've always followed what you've done. I think what you do is uh, interesting. It's cutting edge and, you know, you share a ton on social media, which I think is great. Um, I, I wanted to, I think I know a little bit about your background and I, I think you ended up, you know, as a lawyer maybe not the most conventional route. So tell me a little bit about, um, if I remember correctly, did you drop out of college and then tell, or I'm sorry, dropped out of high school? Is that, do I remember this right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I was actually at Whitney Young High School. Um, I was actually in the academic center. So um, uh, either I was smart as a 12 year old or I was smart enough to fool people as a 12 year old. Um, <laughs> But I ended up dropping out of high school uh, fairly unceremoniously with uh, not any really good grades in high school or any good high school experience. Um, the, the folks who kind of raised me gave, essentially gave me a job uh, in their dark room. And then I started writing for various alternative media. And eventually uh, I got into college. When I, when I, gradu I graduated college um, at the age of 25, I started again back in alternative media because that's what I was used to. That's what my degree was in, was in journalism. And um, it was hard for me to keep a job. 
based on my personality in general. So after the third firing in three years, I went back to law school, which is where I met you. Um, I was 29 when I went back to law school. And, uh, and so, but, but it was, so it, was, it wasn't necessarily the most common route, but it made sense. It was logical. Yeah. And then um, I remember, uh, I remember meeting you in law school. Uh, we were in classes together, obviously. And then um, I, I remember you, um, you killed it at law school. Um, I, I joke around when people ask me if I know a criminal defense lawyer, I always say your name. And then I say, I think he's the smartest person who's graduated from John Marshall Law School. So well, I appreciate that. I was lucky. Um, in one sense, I think the, all the life experience I had uh, made me a lot more cynical about the, the uh, how to actually uh, attend class and how to how to get through school. So um, I had some I had some uh, advantages. Got it. As a twenty nine year old, we've been fired three times. In the <laughs> I remember, I don't know if you remember this story, but um, I struggled really hard in law school with uh, uh, real property. Uh, yeah. With, uh, was it Beshley who taught the class? Yeah, Beshley, yeah. And I remember, I, I, I mean, for the life of me, I just, I'd read things, I'd get uh, like case notes, I'd get Barbary book, and I just, I couldn't understand it. And I remember there was this one case in his class and you always sat in the back, or I just, I remember this one day you sat in the back of the room and I remember I looked at this case and it just for the life of me, it, it wasn't even like in English. And I remember to me, I couldn't even understand it. And I think Beshley called on you to brief the case. And if I remember you read it, like you did a brief in some poem or like a haiku or something that was like totally funny and off the wall. Does that ring a bell to you at all? It doesn't, but I believe you. I'm sorry. I don't recall. <laughs> sorry. And, and, and I just, I remember thinking I couldn't even read it and brief it. And then here you're like reciting your brief as like a poem to the class. And I was thinking like, man, this guy just gets it. <laughs> I'm totally missing it. Yeah. The, all I got was that Beshley was um, an egomaniac who's, uh, whose head was so far, uh, you know, where that, that I had to mess with him a little bit. That's, that was really what that was all about. I, I'm, I'm sure. All right. Actually, I like Besley. He was a good guy, but yeah, he may, he tried to make it harder than it was. Uh, I'll, I'll give you that. If I recall. But um, I, law school experience was a good experience. Um, it was an uh, opportunity to, it was even as cynical as I was, most people go into law school and they think that they're really learning something that's meaningful. And so even whether it is or it isn't, just thinking that makes it a fun experience, right? Um, and trying to be creative and trying to have the hope and naivete that comes with, I'm going to get some tools that allow me to, to really impact the world. That's a fun time. And even if you're lying to yourself a little bit, it still gives you a purpose that makes it fun. And so yeah. That, so, yeah. It was fun. And then um, I think you did, you uh, worked with some other lawyers, you were solo. And then um, I, I remember always following you in the beginning, you did a lot of criminal defense work. And I thought the stuff you were doing was interesting. I listened to, I think you had a 1983 case where maybe you prevailed on a couple of counts and then a couple of counts you didn't. And then you filed your fee petition. I remember listening, I think you had arguments in the Seventh Circuit. So yeah, so, um, well, first off, let me say, I think what you do is actually more interesting than what I do, but <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, in terms of, so, honestly, I came out of law school, um, and there's a few of us who came out of law school, either who entered uh, the semester me and you entered or who entered the semester before us, 
um, who, who all ended up being solo practitioners, um, either because they want to, or in my case, I really couldn't find something, honestly, who would hire me. Um, and I think you know some of them, like, you know, Joey, uh, uh, Jimmy DeCristofano, Adam Lazinski. So I was talking to them. I've talked to them since day one because I was a solo practitioner since day one. And, and frankly, um, it allowed me to learn a lot quickly, but it really probably messed up some of my earlier clients in the first two or three years I was practicing. Um, we've, I've done over 400 uh, Section 1983 police misconduct cases. Uh, I've done um, over 2,000 criminal defense cases. I actually do know the case you're talking about, though, because I think it was an important case. Uh, we lost the appeal. The case was uh, Jose Montanez versus, versus Vincent Fico. And the re I first became aware of Vincent Fico in 2007 when he was part of a team, a very crooked gang and gun team on the west side that included officers Napoli and Daly um, and a sergeant, um, who I'm going to hold his name for for a minute. And they would regularly raid folks without probable cause. And on this particular occasion, they raided a cop and his name was Marquis Cooper. He was a black cop and they didn't know he was a black cop. They just knew he was a black man on the West side. Um, and they raided on a false warrant, uh, that was made up by, by officer Daly who made up an informant. That's when I first became aware of Vincent Fico between 2007 and 2011, 2010, Vincent Fico had 14 citizens complaints against him. In the middle of that, one of those citizens' complaints is when he beat up Jose Montanez. Now, taking the Marquis Cooper case was easy. We took that to trial. We won a big verdict. We won a big fee petition. They had no problem. The judges had no problem giving me every dime I asked for on my fee petition for Marquis Cooper. Jose Montanez had tattoos all over his face. He had a very extended criminal history. He was a, he was a gang member. He, um, he was a violent gang member. On this one particular occasion, um, he kicked Vincent Fico in the groin and Vincent Fico proceeded to beat the shit out of him mercilessly. So the city of Chicago wasn't gonna settle that case. The judge didn't believe we had a case because of our guy, what he did to provoke it and his extensive criminal history, but we took it to trial. Prayer was the lead on that and she won the trial. Now the jury only gave Vincent Fico, I mean, gave Jose Montanez two thousand dollars, right? One thousand in, in, in punitive damages, one thousand in uh, compensatory damages. This is in two thousand and twelve, by the way, when the jury came back. Around the same time, Marquis Cooper, who all that happened to Marquis Cooper was these cops ran up in his house and they pointed a gun at him, and then when they realized he was a cop, they left. That was the entire Marquis Cooper's case. Marquis Cooper's jury gave him five hundred eighty-five thousand dollars. Did the city appeal that or no? No. Wow. Well, they 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 filed a motion on the 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 damages got reduced a little bit by the judge, um, but it included some punitive damages which we never collected. Um, we filed a nine hundred sixty-five thousand dollar fee petition in Marquis Cooper's case, and the city agrees to it and pays it. We file a $320,000, and remember, these are, these are cases that get litigated for three, four years and go to trial, and, and we ran up the fee petition. And frankly, I'll be honest, when we filed the fee petition, Marky Cooper, I mean, in, yeah, Marky Cooper, we thought it'd get cut in half or a third, and that's why we, it got pumped up so much. 
and we right. would put ridiculous hours and we had four attorneys do the trial and it was a it was a it was a, a 10 day trial so it makes you know some of it made sense the vincent fico the Martinez versus fico trial was just as long we filed a three hundred twenty thousand dollar fee petition and the judge who was pissed off that we even won could not believe that we got an all-white Northern District of Illinois jury to give our guy $2,000, a gangbanger with an extensive criminal history who kicked the cop in the groin, $2,000 for getting the shit beat out of him. Right. Cuts the fee petition down to $110,000. So we peel it up to the circuit court because our point was, look, if you want lawyers taking, it's easy to take the Marquis Cooper case. And the truth is there was no damages in Marquis Cooper, right? Marquis my guy. He loves me to this day because we did such a good job for him, but there was not real damages in the Marquis Cooper case. The fee petition, fee shifting in, in 1983 police misconduct cases isn't about the Marquis Cooper case. It's about the Jose Montanez case. It's about the guy who no lawyer will take his case because because of because you're going to get a jury that comes back with $1,000 in damages or $2,000 in damages, one in credit story and one in punitive. No lawyer will take that case unless there's incentivized to through fee shifting. And if you're going to dramatically reduce the fees when, when just as much, if not more work went in on a harder case, right. Um, then you're really going to disincentivize people trying to enforce their civil rights. And, and, it, and the truth is, is that Jose Montanez, the civil rights are much more important to try to enforce in that particular situation because they're much more harder to enforce in that particular situation. And so that's what the appeal was essentially. Um, here's the interesting thing. We lost that appeal, but something else happened. Vincent Fico, whose first citizen complaint came in Marquis Cooper's case, and then had 14 more citizen complaints over the next four years, never had, has never had another citizen's complaint since we won the Jose Montanez case, because what we got out of Jose Montanez was $1,000 punitive. I have a picture of a check with Vincent Fico's name on it, where he signed it over, to Jose Montanez. So you have this police officer who got kicked in the groin by a gangbanger with a violent criminal history and he paid him $1,000. But ever since, Vincent Fico hasn't had a single citizen complaint against him. That's nine years going now. Right, so it worked. It worked. Right, and it's interesting. The reason I was listening to the case with the $2,000 in damages is my consumer rights practice deals with nominal statutory damages plus a fee shift. You're, you know, minor civil years are criminal, but the, the thing is, is my clients, you know, your gangbanger client with tattoos on the on his face is starting from behind the eight ball and my clients start behind the eight ball as well because they owe the debt and someone's collecting on it or they owe the debt and something's inaccurate on the credit report. No one wants to take that case, but for the fee shift provision. Correct. And, um, and, yeah. So anyway, I remember it was you made very similar arguments in your case at the Seventh Circuit that, you know, we make when we do fee petitions as well. And it's the same thing. My judges don't like our cases. The consumers owe the debt. They think, why not just pay? Why would you violate? How could they violate the law if they're collecting a debt? So, yeah, it was very similar. And I remember, you know, listening, you know, to that argument because we make very similar arguments. Um, and then, you know, what I thought, so I, I followed your criminal stuff and my thoughts, you know, interesting is you and I recently, I don't know, maybe four or five, six months ago, went out and got lunch. Um, and I, you know, I remember sort of picking your brain and we were talking about cases you're working on. It seems like you're, you know, handling less of those cases and more so getting into 
you know, licensing and other issues. And we were talking, which is something I want to, you know, bring up now that we can talk about is you were helping a lot of people apply for licensing for uh, marijuana. Yeah. So it's, it's really hard. Um, so I talked about even as cynical as I was, which allowed me to write hot haikus apparently in property class. <laughs> um, you know, you still have some hope in law school that there's, uh, there's some logic fairness I knew there wasn't any equality, but that there's some logic and fairness in a courtroom, right? Right. And and you know they uh, the the pre-law school process and the law school process really tries hard to convince you that there's a culture of logic um, in terms in terms of and you need to be logical. What you learn when you get into the courtrooms is that they're completely arbitrary, not logical. Um, that uh, that we're relying on the whims and biases of the priors of fact of human beings, and that there's absolutely nothing about the system um, that substantively removes those whims and biases. There's just a a, a very uh, very thin patina of of um, apparent objectivity that gets portrayed by the courts that that is not real. And that's very hard to deal with when you're when you're in criminal courts and you're talking about people's freedom, and 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 the the complete unevenness in, in terms of how things get decided, uh, and 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 the and and the the lack of certainty in terms of um, in terms of whether or not you know what the impact of somebody's on somebody's life's gonna be. It, it was very hard to keep going to court. And to stand there and and have um, not very smart people often, and not people with good hearts always, almost always, uh, send people to prison when they really shouldn't be. Um, so, the last few years, I've really tried to get away from criminal defense. I, I still have a few criminal defense clients. Um, the firm does a lot of criminal defense. Uh, what we've been doing recently for the last couple of years is trying to get those who were most impacted by uh, the war on drugs, actual licenses um, to grow, distribute and sell uh, marijuana in this um, legal scheme. It, it was, I thought a few years ago, a real opportunity for actual reparations, reparations for the war on drugs, reparations for the uh, continued uh, inequality in, in terms of access to power and access to capital. Um, it hasn't turned out that way yet, but we're still fighting that fight. And uh, in the fall, the process opened up for 75 dispensary licenses in Illinois. There was almost 4,000 applications for those 75 dispensary licenses. Um, we filed 201 of those applications on behalf of 23 clients, all of whom were social equity in one way or another. Um, but uh, basically, I, what I had is basically three clients pay, I'm kind of unbeknownst to them because they just thought they were paying, and if anybody else, they were just paying the right rate, but it ended up basically paying me enough so we could then do essentially about 100 pro bono um, uh, applications, which is what we did. So we, there was a bunch of clients who paid just for themselves, right. there's three clients who paid for themselves and for some other folks. And you started doing the application process fall of 19, right? Well, 
So I've been involved in marijuana licensing actually since 2014. I had one client who I worked with and they and got a medical dispensary for them in, in the fall of 2014. Um, I was because and then I represent their dispensary. So I've been active in the space since 2014. And I was really active for a couple years leading up to the passage of the legalization bill, trying to really shape it. Um, so I was very familiar with the bill and I was very familiar with the process that got us to that particular bill. Um, but I've been writing applications essentially since the summer of 2019. Got it. And so um, it's legal starting January 1st, 2020 in Illinois. Um, how many, like up until then, how many medical dispensaries um, were there? And then what's, you know, we were talking about this at lunch uh, a couple of months ago, like what's the rollout phase going to be uh, like in Illinois? Yeah, so Illinois is really interesting. Um, first off, there's kind of an East Coast, West Coast dichotomy. It just doesn't have to do with rap. Um, the West Coast regulations have been very loose and very open. So when you go to those West Coast states, there's almost no limitation on dispensaries. This was true both when it was medical and rec. Um, the East Coast states, in, in, and I know Illinois is Midwest, but we're going to go with that dichotomy for now, um, mostly created very restrictive licensing schemes, both for medical and now as we get into rec, for rec. So in Illinois, when the medical bill passed, they were only going to be allowed 22, 21 uh, grows and uh, 60 dispensaries. Then there were only going to be two licenses. The grow did everything, grew it, extracted it, infused it, produced it, processed it, everything. Um, the uh, Ultimately, after the whole application process, the competitive process and everything else that went down in Illinois, we ended up with 21 grows and 55 dispensaries. Now, that's similar to some other East Coast states like New York and Maryland, or even some other Midwest states like Ohio in terms of how restrictive it was. What was interesting about Illinois though is, unlike those other states, Illinois actually took the lead in, uh, in terms of anything east of the Mississippi uh, in terms of medical marijuana. So Illinois is kind of one of the first and one of the most restrictive. And the, and you know, we're, we're a city of hustlers. So something interesting happened. Over the past five years, you've had about nine or 10 big multi-state operators develop across the country who have a bunch of licenses in a bunch of states. And basically five of them, almost half of them, started here in Illinois, almost here, basically in Chicago, coming out of the growth of the medical program. So ultimately, where you had 20 grows owned by 14 or 15 different license holders. They're now, I think, owned by about 11 different license holders. And where you had 55 dispensaries, probably owned by about 37, 38 different entities, they're now owned by like about 16, 17 different entities. So you have a company like Cresco who did a very good, who started in Chicago, did a very good job, won three um, grow licenses, won one or two dispensary licenses, um, and then start going all over the country, picking up licenses over the last five years, became publicly traded in the fall, on the Canadian uh, Stock Exchange in the fall of 2018, and then consolidated and picked up three or four more dispensaries here. Similarly, Green Thumb Industries, or GTI, started here, did the exact same thing. Verano, um, which is known as Adaraxia, does the, the Gold Leaf brand, started here and pretty much did the exact same thing. Pharmacan 
started here, did the exact same thing, went into a merger with MedMen and then pulled out of it. Um, so you have, you have, so you had this restrictive licensing that became even more restrictive. And for all intents and purposes, because of that, because so many of those multi-state operators start here because they were able to consolidate here and because they have so much political power here, um, Illinois became the hub of multi-state operators. So you have this interesting dynamic. Illinois has always had this dynamic. This is, uh, this is why we've produced the majority of black uh, senators and the only black president. You have this interesting dynamic where you simultaneously have all the activism, or not all the activism, but a lot of activists trying to create reparations and equity and equality, and you have the money and the power somehow becoming hubbed here. Um, so that was the confrontation that was occurring for a year, year and a half, two years leading up to the passage of the, of the legal marijuana bill. You had power and money in the hub of the multi-state operators and you had angry, righteously angry activists um, trying to create some equity in a system that, that jailed millions. The, the result was a law that was truly a compromise, as probably as much of a compromise as you could get given the, that dynamic, given how much power and money the Crescos, GTIs, Pharmacans, Ronalds, and others had, and given how much righteous need there was for equity. The result was basically the, those multi-state operators are going to get no competition for the means of production. Um, well, whereas folks trying to get in the industry are going to have a huge leg up on getting the dispensaries. And so this is what I mean. The law calls, the law keeps a fairly restrictive process, calls for 75 new dispensaries to open up on January 1 of 2021. I'm sorry, let me go back. It gives the current operators, their 55 dispensaries, they get to become rec, they get to add another one and, and, and have that be adult use as well. So there's 110 dispensaries that for a year get a monopoly on the recreation in 2020. And those are mostly the multi-state operators and a handful of independents. Right. So the fit, let me just cut you off one sec. The 55 that were here prior to 2020 for medical, they now get medical and, as you call it, rec. And then starting in 2020, they're going to add an additional 75 licenses, which is what you helped out? No. So um, it's, you know, I know I'm going, I'm maybe it's a little complicated. So those 55 license holders yeah. who are mostly represented by the hub of the capital, the means of production, um, they get to go, they get the only dual licenses, which are real valuable, medical and rec, recreation, and they get a second recreation license that they get to locate somewhere else. Got and it. all of them get to open up and sell entirely for 2020. That's 110 licenses, dispensaries that get to sell in 2020. Not all of them are opening up and they're still getting there. And then there's three more rounds. January of 2021, 75 licenses come on the board. And those are the ones that we were applied for in the fall and they're gonna announce on May 1st. And those, the way the scoring is, people outside the industry have a real leg up. And then in 2022, January 2022, there'll be another 110 licenses. Or um, yeah, 110. So if you do the math, that brings you to about 295. And then in 2023, they, they'll be up to another 105 licenses. So they'll get, we'll get up to 500 licenses. To be clear, that's still a fairly restrictive 
um, licensing scheme in terms of dispensaries, even if you get all the way to all 500 dispensaries, um, that'll be less than less than the number of dispensaries in Colorado and Washington and Oregon, all in Arizona, all states that have a bigger population. I mean, a smaller population in Illinois. So it's still fairly restrictive. The good news is those 390 dispensary licenses that are on their way over the next three years, um, I'm sorry, 290, they're on, yeah, 390, they're on their way over the next three years, um, are, will likely mostly go to people who aren't in the um, industry now and who have been impacted by the war on drugs or who come from what's, you know, come from communities that have been Im impacted by the war on drugs. The bad news is, is that there are no grows currently um, and the people who, who are actually growing and processing remain, is still the multi-state operators. There are, which is the license applications we're writing now, what they call craft grows and infuser licenses. There'll be 40 of those, 40 each uh, January 2021 and then 60 each January 2022 and you get to, you get to have up to 5,000 square feet of grow under lights. But if you own a full grow, you get to have 210,000 square feet of grow under lights. I don't, I don't know how much in detail you want me to get, but the point is, is that one grower has more square footage to, to grow their plants than all 40 craft growers combined. How did companies like Cresco and the, what was the other one, Greenleaf? Green Thumb Industry. Yeah. GPI. Yeah, how did they all end up, you said, here in Chicago or starting in Chicago? Like where do well, they grow? No, they're from Chicago. Um, that's what I'm saying. It was a unique situation where you just happen to have a very restrictive licensing um, in Illinois. Illinois was on the east of the Mississippi was one of the first states out the gate um, with medical marijuana east of the Mississippi. You have a lot of capital in Chicago and you have a lot of creative folks and hustlers in Chicago. So basically what happened is because it was so restrictive for medical licensing, there was an opportunity to develop and grow multi-state operators here. Um, don't get me wrong. There's multi-state operators everywhere. They're, they're a bunch are coming out of California um, and, and, Las Vegas, and Nevada and other places, but it's just um, interesting that, 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 uh, Illinois created uh, so, uh, a good portion of them. Got it. And so the 4,000 applications that were submitted, uh, uh, what, end of 19, beginning of 2020? The January, they're all submitted, yeah, between December 15th and January 2nd, uh, uh, just passed is when they were submitted. Got it. So the next several years when they're going to have uh, up to 500 licenses, it's all going to be coming from that pool of 4,000 applicants? No, no. There's another application process. That, so those 4,000 apply for the 75 licenses. Wow. They're going to win them or not, and that's going to get announced on May 1st. There'll be another application process on October that opens up on October 1st of this year. They'll close on January um, of 2021, and that'll be for the licenses in 2022, and then again the following year, the same thing. Got it. What's the cost uh, for someone to submit an application? So... The filing fee is only $2,500 if you're, if you qualify a social equity 5,000, if you don't, um, the, uh, 
it takes more, it's more than a notion, as they say, to write one of these applications. Spentry application was three to 500 pages. Um, these craft grow applications are like a thousand to 1500 pages. Uh, if you can, if you, if you go to a downtown firm, they'll charge you 150 to 200 grand. If you can find a application writer and lawyer uh, who's in the neighborhood, who's reasonable and is charging market rates, probably 75 to 100 grand. If there are incubators programs all over the place who, if you get through a competitive process, they'll help you write one application um, pretty much for free. Uh, there were some lawyers who were doing the applications for as little as 25 to $50,000. Got it. Okay. Um, I want to, oh, I'm sorry. sorry. There's other costs. There's security costs, architectural costs and things like that, but that's the main cost. Uh, when do you think it'll be like at 7-Eleven or the grocery store, like you can buy beer? Um, I don't know. I would have said uh, six months ago, I would have said in five years. Um, I think everything as it relates to retail um, is up in the air right now because of uh, COVID. So I don't know. Got it. Uh, do you think it'll be uh, uh, legal federally first before you can get it at 7-Eleven? Oh yeah, it'll definitely have to be legally federally first. Got it. Yeah. When, do you, when do you think that'll happen? Well, that's what I was saying. That's, that's why I thought, I saw I conflated those things, right? Um, here's what's going to happen. As soon as it goes legally federally, all of the big boys get involved and wipe out everybody else. Um, that's when big pharma and big retail and big liquor and big tobacco get involved. Uh, originally I thought that was about that it would happen federally in five years, middle of next, somebody's whoever, you know, wins now middle of their term, something like that, or, you know, middle of the term after that. And then, and then automatically, you know, within a year or two, you'd get the consolidation. Um, I think it's a lot more likely now. And, and frankly, in interesting ways, probably better for the masses that you won't get full federal legalization anytime soon. I think, you know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I think one of the million residues of COVID-19 will be more of a decriminalization for a variety of reasons. I think it's more of a decriminalization of marijuana and not a full federal legalization. And that that now may not happen for 10 or 12 or 15 years. And I actually think that may be a good thing if it doesn't. Got it. Um, we started off this podcast and you just mentioned COVID-19. Um, and one of the other topics I want to switch gears with you and talk to you about is uh, bail and jail and, you know, what to do and, you know, what's going on. And I've been reading some of the articles you've been posting on uh, social media. And so, you know, what is uh, Cook County doing? What's going on nationally? What do you think should be done? Um, as far as, uh, you know, people who are in jail right now and dealing with COVID-19 and coronavirus. Yeah, so the, the, you're raising three different questions. First, let's start with the question of cash bail. In, in Cook County now, we're down to about 4,200 inmates. Um, you know, three years ago, it was 10,000. Um, at the start of this pandemic here, when it first hit Cook County, it was maybe 5,200 or something. So it's been reduced. You still have something like 
2,500 of those inmates have a cash bail that they can't post. What does this mean? This doesn't, it means it has no reflection whatsoever on what their crime was that they're accused of, what their, um, what their likelihood of appearing in court is, whether they're a danger to the community. It solely means that they don't have enough zeros in their bank account. Right. Because if I get arrested on a gun charge and get a $5,000 bail and a homeless guy gets arrested on a gun charge and get a $5,000 bail, I'm going to be out because I can come up with $5,000. This is the problem with cash bail. Cash bail does nothing except punish pre-trial, punish before there's been any finding of guilt, somebody who doesn't have enough money in their bank account. So as a matter of course, whether there's COVID or not, um, I, I firmly believe there should no longer be cash bail. The federal system, for the most part, makes a determination. Are you a risk, a flight risk? Are you a danger to the community? If you're neither of those, you get out. Maybe we secure it. Maybe we put a deed on your house. Maybe we do some house monitoring. Maybe we do some reporting. Maybe we do what they call a third-party custodian. For the most part, that's how the federal system works. There's no reason the state system shouldn't work like that as well. There's nobody who should be in jail simply because of the, they don't have enough money in their bank account. And the vast majority of people in jail in this county and across the country are there because it's a cash bond, not a, a cash bond, that was and they can't afford it. If, if they're a danger to the community or they're a, risk, a flight risk, you can always just give them a no um, so that's, you start with the baseline that even before COVID, a bunch of those people shouldn't be in there. And, and, and I want to make this before I move on to the second part of your question. To me, it does not matter whether or not I'm talking about a violent crime or a nonviolent crime. And folks make distinction. I think that's a bad distinction because ultimately if it's a cash bond, then whether even if I commit the violent crime and I got the money, I'm going to be out. And, these, and you're talking about people who have not been proven guilty, adjudicated guilty, they've been accused. If you truly believe based on, if the judge truly believes based on background and everything they know about the case they've been charged with now, that they are a danger to the community, then they can put a no bond on them. So regardless of whether it's violent or nonviolent, that's not the distinction. The question is whether it's a no bond or cash bond. Because no bonds cut across the board equally, cash bonds do not. All cash, all folks on cash bonds should have been released. Uh, anyway, should be released because there should be no cash bonds. But then, as soon as COVID came along, it should have been released. Here's the problem. So the second part of your question is, what have they done in Cook County? I I actually know a lot more about the behind the scenes machinations, so I'm limited in what I I can say. I think for the most part. Everybody's heart is in the right place, but Cook County is a huge bureaucracy. Right. And, and they couldn't figure out a way to do a mass release. At least the courts couldn't figure out a way to do a mass release. I think the sheriff probably could have done a mass release, but he threw it back on the courts and everybody made it a hot potato. And there was all sorts of negotiations behind the scenes. And the result was this process where they're bringing up a bunch of cases at any given time and they have a backup judge. I got a couple problems with what the Cook County process was, aside from the fact that the sheriff just didn't do a mass release. The backup judges that are hearing these new bond release cases are the former bond judges that got removed from bond court three years ago when we did bond reform. 
And so they're not releasing as many uh, folks would be released if you had the current judges who are the judges who believe in bond reform. Um, I think, you know, the state's attorney, who's somebody who I worked really hard to help get reelected, is still acting like a state's attorney. Um, I think she could have agreed to releasing a lot more than she has agreed to releasing. Um, and like I said, I think the sheriff could have done a lot more. We've done some stuff in Cook County. There's been yeoman's work, like 24-hour around-the-clock work being done by the activists um, and by the public defender uh, and by some of the private attorneys. Um, but you know what? On a, if, you, if you're grading on a curve and you look across the country, there's a couple of B pluses in the country, like in Colorado, um, they've gotten close, right? You get a B plus. There's a couple other B pluses. There's nobody who's doing what they should be doing, which was hit, release everybody who's on a cash bond, period. And it would have been smart to release everybody who's on a cash bond because it saves community resources. You now got more than 300 people at Cook County Jail who, um, who need medical services. Well, you know who that hurts? That hurts you if you're trying to go to this night or rush or any other or any other hospital immediately around there because those folks now get those now need to get those medical services and you're not going to have access to it. Every jail, every jail in the country should have released anybody who was on a cash bond. The no bails are harder. I'll guarantee. I'll admit that because most no bails, because if you're going to have no bails, either because you're at risk of flight or because you're a danger to the community. But I'll say this: if you're no bail and a risk, and it's the only reason is because you're a flight risk because you missed a court date, then I think they should have been released too. And then what you're left with is the is basically the folks who are dangerous to the community or true risk of flight, like Art Kelly. And then you would have had enough space in the jail to actually socially distance, to humanely uh, incarcerate them if there is such a thing. And then you could have had a different dynamic. We haven't done that anywhere in any state. Colorado came the closest. And the result is, is that in almost every state outside of meatpacking places in some of the Western states, it's the jails and prisons that have become the epicenter. And so now we've done three things. We've basically create a, a death sentence for folks. We've overburdened um, our, our healthcare systems in, in and around those particular jails and prisons. And we've made every correctional officer, um, we've pretty much ensured that every correctional officer is going to also get sick as well. So in uh, with federal crimes, there's no cash bond. It's either, uh, tell me the difference. Yeah, there's, there's nothing, there's no law against it. There's just a culture. With federal cases, there's more of a culture. The truth is, is that the laws aren't that different. Um, there's more of a culture that says, if they're a flight risk or if they're um, a, a, a pose a danger to the community, they get no bond. If not, we're going to release them on bond and we'll give them some conditions like drug testing, maybe mental health. But, we, but we're not going to have them post cash. You almost never post cash. I have posted cash once for a federal client. It was a white-collar crime. Um, and uh, because, and he, they, the government argued strenuously that he was a flight risk because he, he had 
he had he had ran off to India to avoid prosecution for a couple of years. <laughs> this is a completely unreasonable argument on their part. Right. After my fourth bond review uh, um, bond review motion, we finally got him out. But we in that one case, we did have to post a couple hundred thousand dollars. But on all the on all the non white collar crimes, the drug crimes, the gun crimes that that go up in federal court. Cash is never a consideration. They're either released or not. They're either released with conditions or not. Um, now, don't get me wrong. I'm talking to you as a lawyer for the last 15, 20 minutes. The activist part of me, and I've really been organized over the last 10 years by, by the young activists in Chicago, um, by people who are 10, 20, and even 30 years younger than me at this point. Um, I believe, I've come to believe in... Uh, prison abolition. Uh, not in the sense that I think you can knock down every prison now, but in the sense that I think that if you were to do things right, if you were to provide all of the mental health that folks needed, all of the, if you were to decriminalize drugs, uh, drug usage, um, if you were to decriminalize drug possession and then provide drug treatment, um, and if you were to provide basic needs to folks, that there's a path to really uh, abolishing jails and prisons, and that the system we've used for the last few hundred years uh, just doesn't work. Um, and there's nothing either, there, there, there's nothing empirical that imprisoning somebody or jailing them pretrial <clears throat> um, deters or prevents crime, either from them or other people. In fact, all the evidence of the last 500 years, all the empirical evidence is it's the exact opposite. And, and when I talk to young activists, you know, maybe it's if, if, we, if we don't accept anymore that prison and jail have to be a reality, and we say maybe there's a reality that doesn't include prison and jail, maybe we can become creative enough to figure out how to get to that reality. Uh, so as the lawyer, I laid out all the parameters of what I think should happen. As right. the activist, I think all of them should have been released. What did uh, Colorado do that, uh, that you think you would give them a B plus? They they released far and away they released like almost forty percent of their uh, of their pretrial detainees so they released more than anybody else. Got it. So you got to give somebody a B plus, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, right. <laughs> I agree. Um, while we're talking about cash bond, that's one of the nonprofits at the West Side Center for Justice, right? Yeah. So there's two. Well, actually, there's three. Um, so there's the Bail Project, which is a national. Um, uh, bail project that this is in every major city that bails folks out that has a bunch of money behind it. They, they're at the West Side Center for Justice. Locally, there's the Chicago Community Bond Fund, which is also tied in with the Coalition to End uh, Money Bail. Um, the Chicago Community Bond Fund also bonds folks out, not nearly as prolifically as the bail project, um, but, but they're also much more active in terms of organizing folks in the community in trying to change the system. So all three of those are the Coalition and Money Bail, the Chicago Community Bond Fund and the Bail Project are all nonprofits amongst the main nonprofits located at the West Side Center for Justice. Got it. Um, I want to talk to you about uh, one other topic that I believe you were pretty actively involved in. Um, once again, I was following what you were doing on social media, the Coalition to Dump uh, Matt Koglin. Okay, so, what, so another nonprofit at the West Side Center for Justice is the Judicial Accountability Project, 
which consists of the Judicial Accountability Pack and, um, and a 501c4, which is the Judicial Accountability Project. So I formed that pack and that project a little bit more than two years ago. Initially, so the truth is, before, before history gets rewritten, we'll have the record here, because eventually I might have to rewrite history. <clears throat> the, the, the pack was actually formed initially in February of 2018 to help a judge who was a bond reform judge who was having a very difficult race in a sub-circuit. So I formed that to, to, to put about 15, 20 grand to help him out on independent expenditure and it worked and he won. And that was the primary of 2018. And then after that, um, a couple different people put in my ear, you know, nobody's ever lost a retention in over three decades. Um, that's not a good thing. So that pack then, when it first formed was just me, honestly, that pack then uh, identified about 10 or 15 board members with some means and we got together and then we create a coalition with a bunch of community groups um, and that became the coalition dumb Matt Coughlin. Um, and frankly, Coughlin was, Coughlin was a middle of the road judge at 26 in California. And to me, Coughlin was the epitomic um, quintessential judge of 26 California and for most criminal defense attorneys that's great that I get along with him he's a decent guy he's an average judge um, for me at that point that become to represent if you're the average guy at 26 California you're terrible um, so the, the coalition targeted the average guy not necessarily the worst guy at 26 California and he targeted the average guy frankly because um, we did enough background work and had enough background conversations to realize that he was probably of the folks who were the average guys at 26 in California, the easiest to target. Um, he had the least amount of friends that just because he didn't do any of the political work that some other judges do. It, it didn't have anything to do with his background making him like when I was reading some of the stuff, it seems like he's an easy target based on his background and what he did. What I'm trying to tell you is he's the average guy. Almost every judge at 26 in California had that background. So I'm getting to that. Okay. So, so we targeted him because he was the easy guy. Now, Matt Coglin was part of a group of lawyers who came up from the state's attorney's office in the late 80s and early 90s and who actively did work to protect John Burge and Ray Guevara, two very dirty cops, one more notorious than the other. Who are some of the people that Coughlin worked with at the state's attorney's office, first in felony review, and then later on, um, who also uh, at the time, Tom Byrne, Chuck Burns, um, uh, uh, Boyle, Margaret Slattery Boyle, um, Nick Ford, you know what all of them have in common? They were all judges at 26 in California. There was about 10 judges at 26 in California who yeah. actively worked to protect Burge and Guevara as state's attorneys during the late 80s and early 90s. There was three of them were part of a, what was called a cleanup crew at, um, at Felony Review. And when a Burge or Guevara case came up and it was obviously dirty, the, the young ASA left out and the cleanup crew came through to make sure everything got covered up. 
that was your that's your average judge at 26 in California. For, you know, it's changed over the last couple of years actually because when we took out Coglin, a couple that retired, a couple more retiring, and then some other good judges got put over. So Coglin, as a state's attorney, actively participated in the covering up of some of some false confessions and, and wrongful convictions. And what is a in my opinion, a cause in fact, a proximate cause of people going to jail for decades who were innocent, maybe not innocent, who weren't guilty of the crime that they were charged of and convicted of. Right. Um, and so, so, but when I tell you that, that there's a long list of judges who fit that, there really is. So, um, Coglin, so when, when the coalition came together, we looked at those long lists of judges and, and Coglin was the easiest target and that's who, we, who the coalition went after. And the point was not, and, and the reason I went through that whole story is, the point really wasn't Coglin. The point was to send a message to the rest of the judiciary. We picked Coglin to send a message. There's a judge who was a state's attorney in 1992 who got a false uh, confession on a Burge case. And he signed off on all the state's attorney work as Nicholas Ford. He was the judge who heard the post-conviction petition on this 10, 15 years later. At At that time, he became Judge Nick Ford. He pretended he wasn't sure if if ASA Nicholas Ford was the same as Judge Nick Ford, and he refused to uh, uh, he refused to recuse himself because he said the record wasn't clear that it was the same person. And then he denied the post conviction petition, said that the confession was obviously well taken and not coerced. Wow, that's a judge who was on the bench at twenty six in California, who retired on April eleventh. 20, I mean, 2019, six months after the Coughlin race because a message got sent to him. Well, he knew he was next, right? Yeah. Um, so, so we're back. The Judicial Accountability Pack is back. We have a 501c4. We're talking to our partners and our coalition members, and we're going to identify. We have a list. We have a short list, um, and the board members are talking. Um, tragically, one of the board members got uh, one of the board members got murdered a couple of weeks ago. His name was Thomas Johnson. Um, he's an Oak Park attorney. Yeah. Um, he uh, he's uh, kind of had his hands and everything, and nobody knew about him. Um, he quietly advised the chief judge. He was a he was a police hearing officer, so obviously he had a relationship with um, with the mayor who used to be the president of the police board. He did a variety of things for. Folks like Elsie Higginbottom and Peter Holstein, developers that have had a huge impact on the city, worked for CHA. He, he has hands anywhere. He he passed, and that was very tragic. Um, I saw board, that. Yeah, I saw that article. Uh, his partner uh, Jeff Gilbert. Yeah. Um, is uh, uh, he was defending one of the most uh, contentious uh, personal injury cases that we've had at my office right now, where. Uh, someone was on a horse and got injured at uh, Rancho 57 in Markham. And um, there's probably, at one point, there were 15 plus defendants in the case. And he, Jeff Gilbert, represented one of the families who owned um, uh, uh, Cinco Blanco Serena 
down in uh, Rancho 57 in Markham. So Jeff, uh, we just resolved the case with his clients, but Jeff and I, he's been in my office, I've been at his office, tons of depths. I mean, the case has been litigated scorched earth for three, four years now. So um, when I saw your posts and read about them, I mean, it's just, it's awful. Um, it's yeah. super tragic what happened. And one of my neighbors here uh, in Elmhurst uh, is a advertising and marketing guy and his boss was very close friends with you know, that couple and they lived on the block from them in Oak Park. So anyway, it's very sad. Apparently I have a, a 12 new meeting I'm supposed to be on, Zoom meeting. Fair enough. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know what's funny is I, I, always, uh, I always think these are gonna be 30 minutes and they're always much longer. Can I end it with a handful of, uh, I've got rapid fire questions I ask for everyone that'll take, that'll take 60 seconds. Uh, what's your favorite animal? My favorite what? Animal. Um, dog, I guess. I don't know. Uh, what app do you use most? Uh, Facebook. Uh, what's your favorite food? Mm, um, yogurt. Yogurt. Huh. Yeah. What's your uh, perfect vacation? Uh, oh, Vegas before the COVID, um, a week there of playing poker during the day, maybe late into the night so, so I can win a tournament and then going out and finding um, some marijuana and a loose woman. Yeah. Did you, did you see the mayor's latest interview? Yeah, she's I, nuts. It's painful. Uh, weekends, finish this sentence. Weekends are for? Um, weekends are for poker, drugs, and sex. And if you weren't a lawyer, what would you be? What type of lawyer? If I weren't a lawyer, oh, you said if I weren't Sorry. a lawyer. If you, yeah, yeah, if you were not a lawyer, what would you be? Um, I don't know, that changes every day. I'd probably try to uh, own a strip club. <laughs> and on that note, uh, I appreciate you doing this. Um, I know we tried scheduling something in person, so once all this social distancing is done, I'd love for you to come to my office and we can uh, continue talking. And you know, I appreciate your time and thanks for doing this. Absolutely. Thank you. Awesome. Take care. Have Take a good care. weekend. All right. You too. Bye-bye.